Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Happy Friday. It is August 26th, another edition of Take Two. This is Heidi Hatch with KUTV2 News. I am joined by State Auditor John Frugal Dougal. Hey, great to be with I you. I like that that rhymes. Thanks for being here. <laughs> Absolutely. And Mara Carabello of the Exora Group is here. It's I know what be you hard one. I don't with know. Carabello. I got very Portobello. Little right I now. love very mellow mushrooms. with Carabello. That, that's Ooh. nice. Good. Yes. Good. Okay. Now that I'm was hungry easy. for mushrooms. <laughs> I know, but like we'll think we we've got to get you a nice little campaign slogan here or something. But I oh, was, that's not a campaign slogan. My dad was frugal doogle before I was even born. I oh, feel wow. like I've lived my frugal doogle life too. I've actually been driving the last couple of days, rushing around to different, like an hour this way, an hour this <laughs> way, because some furniture stores are having tent sales. Right. And I just want to save money because I'm frugal Heidi Hatch. And then I got home and I opened some bills from the hospital from a recent surgery. And I'm like, why am I dr- driving around trying to save a few <laughs> pennies in there? Because I'm just, I'm just going to give it back to the here. system. Yes. So I like frugality and um, we're going to talk some cash today, but on my way in, after looking at said hospital bills, I was listening to the radio and I'm like, there is no good news right now. The Fed chairman gave his annual speech and it was like, buckle up guys, it's going to be a tough run. And then uh, the Dow, I think, is down by a thousand. Inflation is here to stay. So the new normal, the new normal, but it is at a good down. I mean, it is not as bleak as we have usually. Good down. It's such a wonderful downer. It's less bad. The causes of it are significantly different than a a perpetually slow economy. Also, um, this only applies to some people. So I'm a little conscious of the fact that that's true. But stocks right now, particularly small caps, so, uh, you know, small business stocks, are really affordable and it is a great time if you're young and you've never invested and you want long growth not I'm not talking about the hot shots that are Mm -hmm. doing for big money but now is a pretty good time for young people or people with not much money to start investing wow speaking of all the wonderful things you've got discounts at stores because they overpurchase and you got those surplus bins they've been telling us that our Christmas shopping should start now because the supply chain backed up all the retailers, so apparently these and then they start some of the best deals yeah. of the year. All right, well, I so need look, some the deals. calamity has given us something, something not good. really the silver lining of those dark clouds. Yeah. <laughs> Are you applying for Joe Biden's press secretary? I don't know. I don't Man, know why I was, gave such a that was pro so, that was so <laughs> wonderful. I feel like he could use a new um, press secretary. I liked his old one. I don't know. I, yeah, she was good. It's weird to have a preference. I think that's got to be oh, the press secretaries. It's Just a listening public, job. please pick your favorite press secretary. Let us know. That's right. <laughs> Send in your recommendations. Okay, uh, biggest topic that when you're going home right now and you're talking to your friends, your neighbors at work right now is student loan forgiveness. And we have been waiting. And I think the gut feeling something was... Something happened this week? Something did happen. And I think the gut feeling was that President Biden was going to do something. But when was he going to do it? Who was it going to be for? Who would it help? And... Um, 
the plan came out, although I think there's still pieces missing from the plan where we don't know. But President Biden's plan, in case you've been hiding under a rock, <laughs> is to give uh, forgive up to 20000 for Pell Grant recipients, 10000 for other student loan holders. Uh, payment pauses will continue for everyone else until the end of the year. Personally, I don't understand why we're still pausing payments unless it's political at this point because uh, the jobless rate is so low right now that anyone who wants a job, has a job, needs a job, should be back on their feet and able to pay. But who knows? Uh, Mara, we'll start with you on this. Um, just your overall reaction of whether this is a good thing or a bad thing, because there's lots of things we can pick apart on this. I think it helps the right people. Um, I think that it does help middle class. I don't think this is, I was reading some criticisms on the right and it said, hey, it's having the blue collars pay for the white collars. I mean, that's not true when you look at the subset of who will be forgiven. He really focused on Pell Grants, which to qualify you were coming in um, with a low economic support and then $10,000 sort of wipes it out. Now, it doesn't solve all the problems. Um, I'm not... I'm not in agreement with the critics. We have a bad habit right now of criticizing. The big criticism is it's not helping with college tuition, which is going up exponentially. 9% a year is mm -hmm. an unacceptable amount. We haven't helped the affordability of college. We haven't made a case for what kinds of new colleges or certificates that we need. I would be one who would join the chorus that says certificates and skill-based degrees have a more and more urgent role in our marketplace. But I'm okay with all that. I'm okay that it doesn't solve everything. I think nothing solves everything. And I think this does give relief. Now, there's always a moment in time, right? This is retroactive a little bit. I can't remember, a couple of years. So yeah. if you missed today's deadline, but even well, a couple of years ago, you missed June, another it was deadline. Like June 30th yeah. or whatever. Eventually, yeah. someone's cut off. It doesn't have total equity. Um, it certainly is. So I am for giving relief to middle class America. So I'm going to stick with that as my highlight. It's got tons of challenges with it. It doesn't solve underlying problems. And we've We've, we're getting into a bad habit of what feels like electioneering, right? Oh, one for you, a car for you, and then it goes away. We're not, Here's we're not handling our problems. I am not among those that believe it hurts our long-term deficit. Um, Biden's numbers right now, actually, he has he has brought down the deficit. I don't think this hurts or helps inflation. Is that maybe because we're not at war right now? or Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I think it, the spending is lower, but I mean, I, I don't think this hurts or helps our economy, and I think those who say it does hurt us, uh, I think that's equally political. So I'm net plus because I think it targets the right amount of Americans who need help right now. You're right in the middle. And when I'm looking at right social media online right now, people um, who feel like it's not fair because they worked multiple jobs, um, they paid off their loans, or maybe they just paid it off that it's not fair, or there's some people on the other side that are like, well, I've got 60000 you should pay it all off. You right. know? So it seems like there's people angry on both sides. Where do you fit in on the overall um, viewpoint of the student loan forgiveness? So I don't think this fixes a single problem. It creates more problems. It creates more moral hazards telling folks, hey, guess what? You got bailed out? Hey, take on more debt, and we'll bail you out in the future. I mean, right now you express something that I agree with. Okay, the cost of higher ed is going out of control. It's pricing out students and it's pricing out taxpayers. And this probably makes it worse by sending the message, hey, the government's gonna bail students out so you can charge whatever you want to because the government will be there to help them. I, I, I just don't think that's gonna fix higher ed. I mean, ironically, the thing is, have students bear more of the weight, put the pressure on the universities, and then the universities will actually start to rein in their costs. The other thing is, you talk about the middle class. 
I'm sorry, I don't think a family making $250,000 a year constitutes middle class in the minds of everyday Americans. And so when you look and say, yes, indeed, those that didn't go to college are going to be paying for those that did not, and that's a lot of working class that couldn't afford or chose not to go to college. So they will be footing the bill to pay for those that had the privilege of going. And those that you're saying is targeted, I'm sorry, you know, if you wanted to do something to cut it off at some range and then phase it out or something like that, but if you made $251,000, too bad, so sad. But I don't think that's a middle-class family. So John's referring to the fact that to get $10,000 mm-hmm. off of your grant, you would the cap out is 125 so you're 20, 120 So if you were in a two-parent household and you both made the max, so that would be the max of what you would ever make to get $20,000 off your school, just to be clear on that. So that's not who the average person is who's getting it. But to your point, if you hit every condition that they had in this payback program, you would be in a family who made that kind of income and you'd qualify for the 10000 You wouldn't qualify for the $20,000 reduction. You'd qualify for yeah. the ten, though. The interesting thing is I hear a lot of people talking online right now, and I think there are people who are burdened with debt who this really will make a big difference in their lives. But there's a lot of people, too, where kids have, and, and I see it even in the circle of friends I have around me where they use um, student debt to um, go on fancy vacations or they do some study abroads that, while are awesome and part of an educational process, you know, they're fun that not every student can do or they'll buy a new car, they'll use it for a nicer apartment. So sometimes these funds aren't directly paying for education. I know there's frustration in that. One thing I think is interesting is the timing of all this and Politics always plays a role in politics. We're coming up to the midterm election. Uh, President Biden, this was a campaign promise for him. So obviously it's something that he's been wanting to do. Did he time it, you know, to get a little goodwill heading into the election? Possibly. The question now is, could there be some serious disappointment? Last summer, the same time, I think it was July, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said that President Biden did not have the executive authority to issue debt forgiveness. That would be something that Congress would have to do. And then just this week, uh, Democrat Chris Pappas of New Hampshire said um, that this sidesteps Congress and our oversight of fiscal responsibility. So, Mara, uh, is there going to be a legal battle over this, or is it just big talk and this is an executive order that we'll go through? Yeah, no, I will say this did never purport to solve higher ed. So the criticism that it doesn't solve higher ed is misapplied because it didn't purport to do that. But I do think that it does create a legal conundrum. And what I like about this is that I have no patience for a Congress that says, you know, frankly, we're going to do little to nothing, but no one else can also do something. So I'm okay with an executive branch that gooses the Congress to try and do Bring anything. out your pen and your phone, Obama, you know, that I mean, kind of thing. Right, right, like, so do something. So, yeah, it does create, and it might get mired in it, and it will be at the expense of, of the citizens, as are all mm-hmm. gridlock battles, and particularly when you add in sort of litigation. But I think it's okay. It's okay as a strategic move for the executive to branch to call them on their it's our problem because the congress is doing very little to anything if to solve those problems i'll i will also just take a little bit of a bite at a government who has prioritized over and over again economic bailouts for large governments in the name of economic stimulation and so either way what i have appreciated is i think you've always been one to be equal about that applied but i think I there's hate bailouts for all right but i i'm a little like we routinely in the name of conservative economic development subsidize 
um, industry much more than we've ever subsidized families. Uh, legal problems. So, do you see this going through the courts or do you think it's going to be a shrug and everything will move on? Um, I'd love to see it go through the courts. I'd love to see it challenged. But Nancy Pelosi a year ago saying it's circumventing Congress mm-hmm. and, and was encroaching on where the president didn't have authority and Congress did to, I think she was reported to have said yesterday or today, this was an act of courage. Yeah. So in essence, she was applauding President Biden for bringing out his, <laughs> for bringing out his, uh, his, his pen and his phone to, to take care of this. Because I think she likes the policy, maybe wants more of it. But it's interesting. Congress should be defending their authority and doing their job rather than complaining and passing the buck and allowing it. Now, I I would love to see the Republicans challenge it, but they're in the minority right now. So I don't think they could really, as Congress, challenge what the president did at this point. The other thing for any elected official reading the polling, it's not a popular stance right now to oppose it. So. Yeah. And that's the interesting thing is that if Biden wanted to, he probably could have pushed this through Congress because, I mean, he's got mm-hmm. the votes um, on both sides. Although I think there are some Democrats who are not um, totally on board. I'm sure there was something they could right. do to make it happen. So it's interesting that he didn't go that route. But then again, I look at some of the issues that I feel like Congress should have been able to come to the table and solve with immigration, DACA and other stuff. And they just haven't done it. So, And, and I'll you know. note one other thing. At the end of the day, when you look at the Constitution, I don't see higher ed called out there as something that Congress even should be dealing with. And we've waited so far in this over so many decades that now they just assume that it's a federal responsibility. So, John, this is the next question then, because when you start to look at when everything got more expensive, is this because the government got into the business of loans? And once the government got into the business of loans, it gave permission to these higher education institutions to charge more, charge more, charge more? Or are we paying for what we get? It's expensive to send your kids to college and everything that goes along with it. Uh, Both. Both. I mean, it's expensive. What colleges offer these days has been expanded because people expect more, you know, activity centers and other things like that that were not the norm, you know, decades ago when I was going to school. But the other dynamic is if you look at lots of different charts, they'll show whether it's state subsidy or whether it's federal subsidy. Things seem to just keep escalating. The more that we're giving, whether it's grants or loans or other things like that, it seems like, okay, college says, hey, they can now bear more burden, so we're going to charge them more, and it seems to track. As the federal government gives grants, we're going to increase our tuition commensurately. And And you see that time and time again. It's ironic a little bit, and I think this is, Heidi, your underlying question is that you're taking out of one pocket to put in another Mm -hmm. to some degree. It's an unusual structure. And I do think it happened with the universal, what what we became known as the, you know, Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae system. It was an unusual structure to put in. And again, it was a little antiquated in who was it. It was intended to serve sort of men coming back from war. And as that got expanded and we became bureaucratic about it and complex about it, I do think it has become a part of the tuition problem. Absolutely. I don't know what, I mean, this is probably a whole another podcast for another day, but I would be interested in seeing, you know, what our universities can do to streamline who they hire. Not that we want to let people go from their jobs, but there might be better ways that we can do as a state where there might be one person who can serve a role for multiple universities. I believe uh, Thomas Wright was talking about that after he'd served on uh, the Board of Higher Ed when he was running uh, for governor, something I hadn't thought about. But there's got to be ways that the deep thinkers of this world could figure out that maybe we could start saving some money here and there. Well, you got people talking about why are we building more and more more buildings when we seem to be doing more higher ed online or hybrid or other things like that? Are more buildings really critical? You've got other folks that are pointing out 
because of things like tenure and other things like that. It's difficult to get rid of certain professors. And let's suppose their discipline is no longer in vogue with students. Well, they're still employed there because they've got yeah, tenure. And so I, you got lots of different I'm things that come into play. I'm going to hold down the STEM liberal arts line here, the STEAM, I mean, liberal arts line. I think. Will you add recreation? Call I, it STREAM? Will you? I'd add, be you know, happy to. Yeah. How, how far will Amen. this go? Amen. Make it the whole alphabet. I'm there. I do think what we're starting to see, and I started to see this in the 90s in Utah, which I didn't like is less differentiation between institutions. And so to your point, I, I'm sort of not for professor sharing, but I am for looking at the whole unit of of higher ed and making sure there's distinctions between them and not having four or five bloated systems that essentially do the same thing. Yeah. I also just, do just think... Just locally in their Yeah, and in their area, and we used to do that more. I mean, what became in vogue, everyone had to become a university, and we did away with college education, which I think was a mistake. We um, Utah's doing okay with certificates and skill-based education, but we could do better. And interestingly enough, Utah has one of the most affordable higher education systems, which is why our debt is so low. But to even just show that, it's between 100,000 and 350-ish thousand people who will benefit from having some of their tuition debt taken away. Yeah. Um, and we're really affordable. I mean, I say, if you want to see unaffordable, go to Washington State. I mean, their prices are outrageous. Yeah, we're typically top top two or three in terms of most affordability right. in terms of tuition. It's best to get good grades and go to um, like Harvard or, you know, somewhere like that, because even if you Are go you talking from experience, no, but you know, I started looking into this. Interestingly enough, my daughter had um, a full tuition scholarship at Utah state university and she was thinking about applying uh, to some of the Ivy leagues. And I was like, there's no way we can they afford it. Tuition. But when you look at it, they, you know, a lot of it's waived and the most you would ever pay unless you were like a multi-millionaire, billionaire kind of family would be what you'd pay just for your state education for a university there. So a how lot much, of students... How much do anchors get paid these days? No, sorry. You know, millions and billions of dollars. That's why I'm running around to clearance sales yeah. all over the Wasatch <laughs> Front to buy furniture. Media mogul right here, Heidi Hatch. That's right. So um, so I thought that was interesting too, you know, is that, you know, if get your kids to be good grades or, you know, I think Harvard has a fi- hard time but finding male cheerleaders. they so operation off of endowments, right? Yeah, and there is endowments. a real high risk to these massive endowments and what they're perpetuating in the educational choice system. So, yeah, I, like they, those are subsidized by private industries and private endowments that, that aren't giving then to other higher education institutions. This is one of those crazy historical tidbits. I love history. Back, back in the 20s or so, they were talking about reducing a bachelor's degree from four years to three years. Mm. And then the Great Depression hit. And so we kept it at four years to make work for those professors. Oh, I didn't know that. And so that carries forward today. I had no idea. And interestingly enough, I think kids are starting to take more like five years to get their degrees done. Just or six or seven. Yeah, trying to figure it out. So. Right. I think I the average is like six and a half years to actual finish. school time to finish yes. or a bachelor's degree. College is expensive. I know my son, my youngest, my son is a junior right now. So it's like ACT test time. And junior in high school. Make sure you get your ACS yes, a junior in high school. And so we're starting to think, okay, which college are you going to? Right. And how much are we going to work? I saw that back to school picture. Yes. So yes. it all happens fast. So if you've got college kids, we feel you out there. Uh, before we leave this topic really quick, uh, Mara, you first on this. Do you think this will change any votes in the midterm? Do you think there might be some Republicans who are grateful and are like, thank you, Joe Biden, and maybe vote differently? Or are there people who are upset and maybe they'd go the other way? Or is this just no effect? I don't think it has any effect, although I do think we're running on sort of four, five, six weeks of 
pro Joe Biden, like not anti Joe Biden. News. He's had a good run. He's done a good job to have a good run. I don't think that flips anything major, but it squeezes some seats and maybe keeps them secure in the Senate. Yeah, there should be a slam dunk for Republicans, but it's narrowing. So mm -hmm. I was going to say, you were asking about why the delay. What yeah. I heard, why the delay to the end of the year was to put people on notice that they were going to have to actually start paying it back and two, to tell the loan processors to give them time to ramp it back up going. and staff up appropriately to start dealing with the payments. Yeah. It's been a long time. It makes sense. Sometimes getting the wheels of government turning is not easy. No. I was listening to no, some story not. about the IRS and how outdated their computer systems are. And I'm like, okay, well, like, if that's something we need to figure out the tax system, let's update those. There's just so much money going to A couple of years ago, we had a weird thing with California taxes. And so I had to work with the IRS and the California system. The only way you could communicate with them was via fax. No phones. Fax? No. And I had to find... <laughs> I'm like, a fax, okay, okay, we can do this. This I is mean, like the medical system. <laughs> it is. I, I had to throw back and figure out how to use a fax. Well, a few years ago, well, several years ago, I got rid of the fax machine at our work because we were only getting junk faxes. Right. And so waste the of money, waste faxes. of paper, and we were upgrading the copier, and it was 1000 bucks for a fax attachment to the copier. And I'm like, oh, that's a waste of time. Right. And then we started dealing with a project with, with medical providers, and they only deal in fax. So we had to go sign up for a fax service so we could fax them the information for them to review because that's the only way they communicate. It's I like, baked you've mercy be kidding me. on a law firm on the fifth floor. Is there some security reason for that? I'm like, can't know. you just email or Cer like? There's certain security aspects. And so that's why they're still anchored there because they haven't been able to bridge the cap for more secure email, I guess. There have to be some great thinking yeah. minds that could Come solve on, this we can problem do this. for us. <laughs> I know. Uh, speaking of great minds, uh, this is like the ping pong match that will never end. Uh, the Bears Ears lawsuit is back. and But wait, there's more. <laughs> I know, right? So the state of Utah is suing the Biden administration over the president's restoration of the original boundaries of Bears Ears and Grand Staircase. So the monuments, if you recall, because this has been going on forever, were actually downsized by former President Trump in 2017, before that put in place by Obama. Well, roll back. I yes. Mean, first one was put in place, you know, by Clinton and stuff. And then Obama said, I'm going to do the same. I'm going to do Bears Ears. Yeah. Then Trump paired it back. And that's been expanded back. And so now the challenge. Yes. Is this ever, is this going to end it? Or is this just yet another round in the ping pong match? I think it's one more round in the ping pong match, unfortunately. I think there is an appropriate place where you should use the Antiquities Act to protect certain sensitive artifacts or certain areas. Um, I think that really should be the act of Congress. Um, the president should deal with emergency issues and not things that are out there that you know Congress can just deal with in the normal course of business. And so I think if we're really going to have this solved in a certain sense, it's really get Congress in the act of taking care of these things, making these declarations to make it more permanent and being judicious in the size they are and not overreaching and overwhelming. What if it's an emergency because you want a cool park when you leave office? Does that count? Um, Mara, is this a good use of state funds? Is this um, something that's important, or how do we make this end? It's a poor use of state funds because in this instance, there's a lot of legal precedence that shows that the Antiquities Act may have been used uh, successfully. I very seldom bring paper in, but I thought I'd forget. Ooh. The Supreme Court has gone exactly to this landscape style, which is 
the objection within the the Antiquities Acts from 1906. They adjudicated in 1908 with President Theodore Roosevelt. They've done it with um, 1943 with Franklin Delano Roosevelt about the Teton National Park or next door neighbors. Um, and they have done it two other times that deal with directly sort of landscape versus artifact. And um, each time the Supreme Court has been pretty clear and pretty directive. And I respect Utah's long-running robust ba- debate about our federal lands mm-hmm. that we believe fall within our state boundaries, the same state boundaries. Going back decades and decades. The same state boundaries that the federal government gave to us because Utah, as you know, spent 50 years becoming a state because we called war on the U.S. federal government at the time. We finally came to peace in the federal government, who is the direct authority above the states, drew our boundaries in which they created federal lines. And since then, we've resented it, and I get that. And then reneged on their agreements with what to do with public lands. Yeah, I mean, but that was within their prerogative, as we suggested, right? And so, I mean, that's the history of American expansion. So I would also point out that it's not necessarily true that all Westerners, there was a really in-depth study done about a year ago that showed the majority of Utahns are liking these protected spaces. But our neighbors in Colorado actually just yesterday, or I think maybe even today, their governors, their senators are petitioning the government to... Mm follow through on these protected areas in Colorado, which are called these core areas, it's a slightly different issue. But you see other Western states that are asking the federal government to save these protected spaces. So it's a unique argument in Utah. I'm not invalidating those who are very frustrated with it, but there is a ton of legal precedence that shows that the Antiquities Act can be applied this way. So I understand Utah has a long history of sending message bills and saying, hey, listen, we're going to object to this just because we don't agree. And I think that is a step on how things get changed. But if you ask the illegal analysis right now about whether this was a good use of taxpayer money, you'd have to say no, because... The legal argument is flimsy at best. I think it's interesting, too, when you look at the overall issue. I think that the Antiquities Act and whether it's, you know, national monuments or parks, while they're meant to preserve the land, sometimes I wonder if it does the exact opposite because I think there weren't a lot of people who were like Grand Staircase or Bears Ears. They hadn't heard about it. They didn't want to go there. And now you look at our national parks and how many people are there and the abuse the land gets. So, well, it's protected in some ways, it also probably gets the exact opposite happening Flashing as well. signs saying, hey, open here. Look at yeah. this national monument. Yes. I just want the Protection state to Protection doesn't mean not using it, right? Yeah. And, and who draws attention to that? In, you don't hear about that in Colorado and New Mexico, frankly, because they accept those boundaries and then they start to uh, really try and mitigate use. We don't. We object to them. I mean, this litigation is caused by the state suing the federal government, not necessarily those who are trying to protect this property. I've been worried about that in Bears Ears too, because, uh, you know, so many people didn't know about Bears Ears until the designation. But I, I, I will give blame on both sides that where it gets its profile is those objecting to um, the protection status. All right, we'll see how this plays out. Another thing that I think is interesting playing out, it seems, on social media right now ahead of our election here in Utah, and, uh, well, a lot of people are not focusing on it. Labor Day, another week away, we're going to be full guns ahead, you know, ready for the midterm elections. 
But uh, the lieutenant governor this week was weighing in, saying that she is not going to remove a state lawmaker from the ballot. If you haven't heard about this, uh, Deidre Henderson said she would not remove the newly named head of the Department of Natural Resources from the ballot. He is still a candidate for the House of Representatives. We're talking about Representative Joel Ferry. Democrats have been pushing um, hard, saying that he should not be able to run for this office if he has another government office. Uh, I'm interested to see where the state auditor sits in this. Uh, is it legal? Is it constitutionally? I don't read the state constitution a lot. I think maybe I should read that <laughs> more often. I didn't even read it in preparation for today. But what can you have? This, I will give you homework to do over the weekend. <laughs> can you have a state appointed position, uh, a state paycheck, and then run as a representative as your side hustle? And keep doing that, or is that illegal? Is it bad for the people of Utah? And he needs to pick one or the other. So there's a couple things at play here, and let me give two examples. First of all, um, you have a whole array of, of state employees over the years who have been in the state legislature. And it's up to the legislature to determine who they will seat or won't. And several decades ago, there was a low-level uh, employee from the Department of Corrections who won election to the House of Representatives, and they had to decide whether or not they were going to seat him, whether or not that was a conflict, separation of branches. They decided to seat him, and so that is allowed. Um, it seems now, like he might be an interesting voice at the table. I don't so, know. so then you roll forward, and most recently we had Craig Hall, former state representative, who was appointed as a judge. Now, when did he resign from the legislature? Shortly after he got his confirmation vote, because the dynamic is while the governor appoints you, the Senate may or may not. Most likely they will confirm you, but it's still possible they might not confirm you. And so the practice has been for lots of folks, they officially resign from the legislature. The as practice soon has been from one folk. No, no, no. From various other folks have also, when they've been appointed. To another branch of government? They've waited until the confirmation was done until they, until they officially stepped down. And so I've seen that in a few cases. So, so then you roll forward in this case. He's appointed, but he's not yet confirmed. But if you're on the... Cabinet level of the governor, historically, you don't serve in the legislature. That's viewed as a conflict. But what I'm hearing is because he's not officially confirmed yet, he's not officially the executive director. He's just acting. And so you've got this squishiness dynamic going on. Now, my understanding from the lieutenant governor is she says she does not have authority to remove him. So, so he could step down and remove himself, but she does not at this point have the authority to remove him from the ballot. So is the idea here, Mara, do you think he's going to run if he's appointed, step down, and then he gets just replaced by the governor's office? Or will he try to do both? Well, he's indicated, he has indicated that he'll step down after his appointment. Um, which after would, his confirmation. Ap yeah, after, yes, after, he, and so he would essentially have just prolonged this. But there, there are several things at play. One, I'm just going to first say, we're not talking about the individual. For me, it's important to say I think he has served his district well, and I think he will serve the executive branch well as the head of, of DNR. So I'm glad we're not overusing his name because my frustration is not the quality of the candidate. My frustration is picking and choosing when we're going to decide the, the Constitution. So John referred to one section of the Constitution, which is Section 6, and it speaks to when legislators can serve other roles. And in fact, the year he was talking about was more unique than that 
it was two legislators, a Democrat and a Republican, and they refused to swear them in the first day of the session because they were uncertain of this. And what they deemed, one was a school teacher and one worked for the Department of Corrections. And that day, the day of swearing, they were like, wait a minute, we think this is in violation of Article 6 of the Constitution that talks about where you can get money, how you can get money as a sitting legislator. And they decided in that instance, in that very defined instance, the court did say, hey, listen, the legislature can decide. And this was a school teacher again and a person who worked for the Department of Corrections, and they were like, we think that follows the intent of how you get paid and be a lay legislator. What is being ignored is Article 5, which clearly and directly states that there are three branches of government and you can't serve simultaneously in two. It was acknowledged by the governor's office in which they said, hey, we just had him step down and from his committees. Well, I have two problems with that. One, the governor doesn't decide if somebody steps down from their legislative committees. And two, that's not the honor of serving the public. We don't elect people in hopes that they'll serve on the natural Resources Committee, we in fact elect them because they represent. And in this current moment in time, instead of just deferring his appointment as a cabinet member for two months and not having this conflict, now Deidre Henderson, I'm going to go, I know I'm wonking out, but this is driving me crazy. Talk so nerdy wait, to me. Tell she, us more. She's coming from a totally different point of view. The Democrats are botching this whole affair because what they did is send a vague, whiny, strongly worded letter to the elections office that says he can't stand on the ballot. Okay, let's put away the Constitution for a minute and go to election code because that's what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. Under the election code, she's absolutely right. It's not hers to be the arbiter of her who is on the ballot and when they're on the ballot. So she very narrowly answers back, which I still hold her accountable because she's the head of elections. And the fact that she's taking a pass on talking on the Constitution is driving me nuts. But she says to the Democrats who weren't smart enough to talk about the Constitution, she says, hey, listen, it's not mine to decide who's on the Box Elder County ballot. So she takes a pass on this. Now, again, I still am frustrated with the fact that the head of the elections office is choosing to completely completely ignored the constitutional issue at question because the Democrats weren't smart enough to answer that question. Now, the Democrats shouldn't have put a strongly worded letter in. They should have sued the state, which is what they should do because when you have a question about the constitutionality of things, you sue people. So they should be suing the state about the constitutionality, which will all be for naught because what we all know is that this person absolutely 100% will be appointed to be in the next um, to be the next DNR chair or the head of DNR? Will be confirmed. There is He's been no appointed, doubt. but he'll be confirmed. The other when will the confirmation happen? Not till the actual session. It, ha- it usually term? happens as a matter of course in an interim session. We don't hold. So September at the earliest. September at the earliest. Uh, September 6th is the last day you can put a write-in a write-in name on the ballot. Interestingly enough, two Republicans have put themselves in as write-in for this district. There is a, a Democrat who's running. So I don't think it will actually affect the outcome, and this seat will likely become a re- Democratic seat unless the write-in candidates win, and maybe they will because it is such an interesting ballot this year. Mm-hmm. We're talking Box Elder County And area. it is a strongly Republican, right? Like, it yeah. is firmly a Republican seat. But what frustrates me is that it is small incremental acts. This person will be appointed to be the DNR. This will all go away. But if the people we have assigned... And I'm going to lean heavier on the Republicans who have a more vaunted history of following the letter of the law when they start to excuse the letter of law and say, "Eh, you know what, the consequences are no big deal. And, oh, the people are all really good people. 
That's in fact when the erosion of trust starts to happen. And this is a clear reading of the law. And we clearly have a person living and serving in two branches of government quite needlessly. And I think the flippancy of saying, "Mm, yeah, there are certain situations and it's interpretable. Section 5 is not interpretable. The plain speaking of it is he cannot be a sitting cabinet member. And if you doubt that, read today's stories about water and you will see him quoted as the acting director of DNR. And you will also see that he is, in fact, the House member from House District 1. So it's true that he's doing both things right now. He's a good person. I know no harm will come of this, but I deeply believe that how we stop ourselves from corruption is following the law. Well, and I think this, if you will, going back to Mara's first point, I agree with that. If you go back, I think when I didn't know about the two legislators, but I knew about the one, I think it was a mistake personally when the legislature chose to do that and when they were told that that was allowable because that's from my perspective, what really started this down the path that we're talking about right right now. If they would have said, nope, you can be one branch, you can be another branch, you can't straddle the branches, that would have been a cleaner thing. But they were told that they could do it, and they made that that decision, and it's rolled forward That instance was about where you get your income from, not about the branch you were serving. So what happened to the school teacher? I'm going back to the beginning of story time, and I want an end to this. So did the school teacher get to serve? Both of those positions got got seated to their seats. Okay. They just, it was this moment in time where the first day of the session and everyone went, wait, what's going on? And there was a discussion about whether it was okay that they got, they had jobs that got taxpayer dollars. Mm -hmm. And so in the reading of section six, where it says, Hey, listen, and it, it has older language. It says in a position of trust, you can't get compensated or something. Yeah. So that had to be interpreted. So this the second section of the constitution, they stopped and said, "Wait a minute, it's a school teacher." Now, there was great deliberation. So I actually agreed with the decision because they went back and said, "Oh, wait a minute. Our intent of having a lay legislature and our intent of not having you make a lot of money from the government was not that you weren't in a public service position and getting so teachers are getting paid technically with taxpayer dollars they delineated and said they didn't think either were in violation of that um, because they weren't serving two branches. It was about their income. Since then, thank goodness, we are hiring people. But you couldn't be a city council person and serve in the state legislature. They would have told you no to that. Um, You're saying back then or today? To, I, I would hope actually, both. What year was actually, this? Actually, we had a legislator who was uh, a city, city council, council yeah. and a legislator for, I think it was a year yeah, period yeah. of time before, I think he resigned, got too much flack over it. There was a county commissioner who was planning to serve as county commission and in the Senate. Hmm. And he was basically told, you can't do both. Right. And so he resigned from the county commission and stayed in the legislature. So it's it's kind of been this mixed Back and bag. forth. And what you notice and what you don't. The reason this is so high profile, though, and the reason this is simpler for me is that it is a cabinet member and a member of the House. It matters to me that, so what matters about the cabinet position is a school teacher, yes, it's a profession mm-hmm. and it gets paid by taxpayer dollars. What matters to me about a cabinet position is, is it at will, it's a politically appointed position, and it's a position of public trust and authority. And it is the highest profile position in the executive branch, other than than the the uh, governor, lieutenant governor. I mean, this is his cabinet. So it differentiates itself automatically for me in how it serves the purpose of the separation because it's a member of the governor's cabinet. Now, to one of my employees, one of my deputies ran for the legislature. He did not win. He did not make it through, but he ran. And I had 
had the discussion with him when he told me he wanted to run. I said, if you get elected, I think that means you have to resign right. from my perspective. So that's and was he okay with that? Yeah, he understood that. Yeah. It's all intriguing to me. I, the whole school teacher thing, my brain keeps running rampant. And I'm like, how do you take a month and a half off school? And how do you do this? But right. I think it's intriguing to have a teacher sitting If only a table. month and a half. I yeah, know, right? Um, but I think it's an interesting thing. And I don't know that it's any different to have a teacher who obviously could help get funding for teachers, which I think is an interesting voice at the table. Any different than maybe a private business owner who's trying to, you know, try to get and some I kind of bill passed. And I might misremember, but I don't know if it was full-time for her, too. Oh, I think it maybe part-time. Yeah, I, I need to remember. Because, John, I want to say this was like, wasn't the early I think it was mid nineties? I think it was in the nineties. Yeah, I think so too. Mid late. I'd have 90s to dust maybe. off some cobwebs. No kidding. You guys had yeah. to flip back some decades. Yeah. I did not know about any of that. Be- before I was in the legislature, yeah. I know that. So yeah. but interesting. Uh, this is one of those things that's kinda of gone on for for a long time and we've had many school teachers. Now and, again, and many folks from higher ed that have served in the legislature as well. I get the part where it's no harm, no foul, and it's a good guy, and they're going to make him, and blah blah blah. But that is the slippery slope. We're not. I just hate when you bring up these issues and people then answer with "he's a good guy." I'm like, yeah, but that's not the discussion. Yeah, the discussion was it the right thing to do, and why did you do it this way? And you know, I mean. Separation of power really matters because I'm also on the team that I think that the executive branch powers have been eroded significantly over the last 10 years. We've had a really aggressive legislator that's moved. I mean, they can call themselves into session now. That's a huge deal. And so I think the separation of powers for, for emergencies. and the, it, the the tension caused is so important. So, so you're I've saying been, that Kamala Harris shouldn't be appointed <laughs> at the Supreme Court and be able to do both? Right. I've been super disappointed. I've been really disappointed by leaders that I admire and and will continue to admire, and I think they've they've botched this from a leadership perspective. All right, that was so much information. And, and, and I had just, no idea you guys just were so, so folks, prepared. And just so folks know, the governor appoints. The Senate typically requires a thirty day notice for the public to comment. Mm-hmm. They and by typically they, requires, it's in statute. Yeah. Well, I mean it, it requires, but I mean it's sometimes longer than thirty days. But it's what in I mean. statute. But it's in statute, yeah. and then they have a hearing, and then it goes to the whole Senate for a vote, up or down. Yeah, and he's been in since June. Interesting. Well, let's talk about some more lawsuits. Gerrymandering. It's been a big topic. Gerrymandering. Gerrymandering. Right. Who's Gary? <laughs> Why did he in do charge it? here, right? Uh, there's been some lawsuits across the country uh, over the same issues in other states, but Utah's lawsuit is moving forward. Uh, the state attorneys were hoping that there would be a delay until the Supreme Court decides if states can hear these challenges, but it's moving forward on this. Uh, Mr. Dougal, thoughts on this one as it moves forward. Uh, is this something that we can figure out on our own, or does someone have to step in and be the babysitter here? Well, I mean, you know, it's something that we could figure out for ourselves, but the simple fact is we see this thing going on in all sorts of states, red states and blue states. Yeah. You, know, you hear about dynamics in Texas. New York is having all sorts of problems with gerrymandering out there in, in their state. And so this is a nationwide thing. The, the Supreme Court has said they're going to review the issue coming out of uh, another state. And so this is why Utah was saying, why don't you wait until they figure that out? And then we'll kind of have the the nationwide approach of what the Supreme Court says rather than us do our thing and then maybe find out we're right or we're wrong. I agree with John in, in about observing how many issues are still out there. And what's interesting is they're surprisingly nonpartisan because some assertions are coming from the right, some assertions are yeah. coming from, from the left. And I do think we've had enough post-election action on, or post-redistricting um, action 
that it might draw the attention for for the first time in a long time of the Supreme Court because there are so many active cases. It becomes weirdly problematic, though. I can see where the state would want to stave off and ask for a higher court's opinion because the more you progress to having settled district court levels and they conflict with each other, the more complexity you're going to have in a remedy if the Supreme Court... Yeah, in fact, Jesus. and who is Gary? And who is, who is Gary? Gary? He's the former governor. The current governor, though, when he held the news conference right after the whole gerrymandering was finished here in Utah, he admitted he's like, "Yeah, this is gerrymandering. It happens yeah. here. It happens uh, in other states." And he who if, wins? Yes, if Republicans are in charge, we do it. If Democrats this, are in charge, we. do it. This goes back to the early 1800s. Oh, there is Elbridge Gary. Gary, former governor of Massachusetts. There was a salamander-like shape for a hmm. Senate seat out there in. Massachusetts. And that's where this term comes from. It actually comes from a person from a map that was drawing back in the early 1800s. To save his seat to like protect. Well, he was governor. So I think he was was just the guy in charge. Yeah. Please don't tell us you don't learn anything new on this podcast. Podcast because that's you right. do. Useless trivia. Here you go. <laughs> Random facts by us. And before we leave, uh, Senate debate. Uh, right now, Evan McMullen is going full steam ahead on Twitter, like constantly being like, Senator on Twitter. Mike Lee He's going to win Twitter. Will not debate. And the interesting thing is, is um, if you live in Twitter world, you think that everyone's listening to you and you have this powerful voice, and you do with that. It's a whole bunch of bots. Yeah, there's Elon a lot of bots, me. but I think it's been a while since I looked up the numbers, but I think about 20% of Americans are on Twitter, and a large percentage of them are there for uh, sports specifically. They like live sports and to tweet there, and then there's another percent that are excited about news and politics and follow for that reason. But um, he's been hammering hard uh, that Senator Mike Lee will not debate him. Senator Mike Lee finally yesterday said, we are going to debate. I'm trying to figure out a day. I've heard um, from some that maybe the debate commission suggested dates that were while uh, the Senate was in session. Other people say that Senator Lee's trying to stretch this out. Uh, I believe a debate's going to happen. Mara, are you thinking that there's going to be no debate like we saw in the primaries, or are both parties going to agree to a day and they're going to debate and let us hear their voices? I suspect that Lee will eventually agree to something. I think he will control it. It's never in the incumbent's interest to have a debate, but Mike Lee is a good debater. Like he's he's not. It's usually. The evasion follows perhaps a candidate that it's not comfortable in that environment. They're going to misstep. They're going to misstep. Yeah, Mike Lee's comfortable in that environment. I will suppose that Evan McMullen is too. And so my guess is they'll eventually um, uh, agree to something. I don't think you'll see the Lee team strategically agree to anytime, anyplace, often because there's no upside for an incumbent to do mm-hmm. that. And as you suggested, because I screenshot Heidi Hatch's statistics when she put this out. Oh, you did? Because I thought it was so interesting. Was that on Twitter? This was on Facebook. 23% And as you will see, 69 of those paying attention to Facebook get their information, but only 23% from Twitter. Twitter is just sort of yelling at your foes and, you know, whooping up your It's like preaching to your choir. It totally is. But I do agree, this is definitely a strategy of his. Um, I think Mike Lee has lived through the fire enough that he won't be baited by the, the taunting, but it will be interesting what they think the strategy is. I would come down to, so I am always of two minds. The political consultant in me says, hey, listen. On the one side, but go, on the other side. Go for, your, go for your odds. It's not really with your odds. On the other side, I just do deeply believe that, like, standing and watching 
all the people wanting the same job at the same time mm-hmm. answer the same questions. It's a job I, interview. I know no one pays attention but us, the politicos, but I deeply love this moment in time where they can stand shoulder to shoulder and go head to head with the ideas and that at its best is debating. And so I always, I, I don't like that we're not doing it anymore. We're crafting everything. Yeah, and it's important because I think on Twitter or social media, you can put out your talking points and your talking points often are, I don't know, they're not even like solving any problems. They're like, well, what would you do or what would you do? But they're not saying what they would do to solve problems. Right. They're held accountable where somebody can ask them questions. Uh, Mr. Dougal, are they going to get on the stage and answer our questions for us? I think Mars, right. At some point, they probably will. One, I'm, I'm laughing. I didn't think the debate commission allowed third-party candidates to be in a debate, so it was kind of interesting if, if that's really mm-hmm. what might happen. Um, I do think debates are overrated, though. I think folks should be judged on how well they do the job. And doing the job is different than... What does the challenger do? Well, I mean, the challenger has to make the case of how they can do the job. But but this is where, like, presidential elections, we have these two folks on there, and we judge them based on how well they attack each other in a debate, rather than how seriously they took the issues as president and how competent they were to actually get that job done. And so we kind of place one, maybe it's for entertainment purposes, whatever it might be, and overplay its importance in the whole realm of what it really takes to do the job, whatever that job is. This one, I think, is an important debate because so far, I mean, we obviously know where Senator Mike Lee stands because we can see his votes, we can see his record. With Evan McMullen, I think he's both sided-seeing it right now because he obviously um, got Democrats to back him. He's trying to pull Republicans away. And so there's a lot of God bless America going on that we've heard before. Right. But until you probably get him on the stage, it's going to be difficult to nail him down to actual He's got to choose a position. Yeah, which I think is probably the more difficult. Spoken as somebody who's moderated a debate and nailed people with the questions. (laughs) Well, no, but but you didn't answer my question. Yeah, and then make them follow up and say, okay, what's your real answer? Yeah, and I do think it gives you a chance to, again, see who they are under pressure, which I think is a fair position to be under. I don't think they're overly weighed in that I don't think very many people watch them, which I think is too bad. Um, and I, I deeply matters who moderates, what the structure is, how serious the moderator is about having a meaningful one and not mm-hmm. just headline name-calling. And, and at the end of the day, Mike Lee is really running against Joe Biden. His ads and everything else. Well, he's going to try, for sure. That's, that's, his, that's his strategy. He's running against Joe Biden. He's the guy fighting against Joe Biden. That is his message. So I don't think it's really in his interest to, to go head-to-head with Evan just because of that, because he yeah. wants folks to focus on it's Mike Lee versus Joe Biden. Which and, is and an interesting dynamic because he voted for Evan McMullen in the presidential race Well, and Evan McMullen is running against political parties. Right, yeah. he's running against I'm being gonna, a, a lemming. He's running for independent thinking. It was what he would assert. And how will that work in in Congress? Right, I mean, he. But but that's you objecting to no, to Evan curious. McMullen. I'm not. I'm not suggesting that. I'm saying that is what he's running for. If if Lee is running against Joe Biden, uh, Evan is saying we need an independent voice in it. I've I have already been critical of him when I spoke with him. I said, Hey, listen, you said you weren't going to caucus with either. I'm like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Caucus with the winner. Like, uh, if you're going to be independent, caucus with the winner. But if you don't caucus, if you don't get the great state of Utah. You don't have um, a voice. If you don't have appointments on committees, again, by the way, you know, if you don't have appointments on committees, don't bother. Like, I need a sitting senator with appointments on committees. So I say, if you're going to truly be independent, caucus with the winner then. I mean, I don't pick your team, but pick the winner. Well, this is kind of your playing both sides. This message, right? 
resonates, but the reality is something different. I know that's the hard part because I think there's a lot of voters who really would like to see more independence who they're getting sick of the right and the left and the that versus this. And, you know, so I think a lot of people want to see um, more independence and more other parties. But the way the system works right now is a two party system. And if you don't take part in that two party system, somehow you know, I don't know, maybe someone has to be the person that makes the change or creates it. So maybe he can do that, I will but say it's frustrating. In, in his his strategic defense, the Cook Report, which most people think are, are, is, is fairly sound, has moved this yeah. race to likely Republican, which still very much puts Mike Lee in the driver's seat, but it has been downgraded it's from... It's not sure thing or whatever sure, they call yeah, it. whatever the top yeah. is. And again, you have to still say Mike Lee's in the driver's seat, but... Um, Evan McMullen must be making some traction with somebody because the political reports have have moved this race into likely Republican. Are you guys getting sick of the ads yet? And we're still months I away. I am. I I feel like I'm road worn already a little bit. Like, can I, you do something about that? Here's the funny thing. I don't get sick of them because um, as much as I'm on TV, the interesting thing don't is people it. don't realize this, is I do watch news and I have it on on my desk, um, but oftentimes I have it turned down kind of quietly so I'm not hearing the commercials. But when I'm on TV, when most of the commercials run during the You're 5, 6, 10 this. newscasts, when we hear in our ear, we hear silence during the commercial breaks. We don't hear the commercials. Uh, it gives us time to look over our scripts, to prep, to like focus on what we're doing and not hear answer what's text going on. Listeners, answer text watchers. to listeners. Yeah, so, and I have answer text to both of you. Yes. You know that sometimes I text during the newscast. <laughs> don't tell the bosses. Uh, but we don't hear them. And so yeah. a lot of what the viewers are hearing, we hear silence. And so I don't hear them at nauseum like a lot of other people do, which is kind of interesting. So fun fact about news right now that you've just learned. So... Ah, we're getting exciting. Uh, Have you here. offered a, a, a debate? Would you? Would you, are you hosting? I should. You I know, feel like I, I maybe should know that. I was asked to do but. a debate um, the last round. It ended up um, for some negotiating purposes not working out. I didn't do it. Um, I think my name is in the mix, possibly again to do a debate. Um, I would be happy to do one. Um, so I don't know. What was we'll the negotiations? Didn't have a limo for you. Yeah, no. Didn't have yeah, a green room right. with the right that's food. Right. She had a well, long rider. I think part of it was. Um, I don't think there were some debates where people didn't show up or they were just one uh, right. person or whatnot. And so I don't know what all happened behind the scenes, but I think there was maybe a wish to maybe not have me do a debate that wasn't a debate kind of thing. Right. So I am willing and happy to do it. Doing debates, though, if you do it the right way, is hard it's work. And it takes work. a lot of prep. Before the gubernatorial one, I mean, there were so many... Uh, people I sat down with and met with from both sides to talk about issues and making sure that we were fair and that we were not only asking questions specifically about moving forward on issues, but also holding people accountable on Mm -hmm. where their stances had been in the past. So I think if you do it right, it takes a lot of work. So in some ways I'm like, don't ask me, then I can have a break these next couple of months. Maybe we could have carpool debate karaoke and you could have them both in the car and you're asking them questions or maybe trap them in a small space, shuttle debate and you're running back and forth to their different places. Okay, Mike Lee says this. What do you say? I like Evan it. says this. What do you say? I like it. Do we, they have to sing a song too, right? I would think. Mm. From Hamilton? No, <laughs> From we Hamilton. can. Yeah, that's too obvious. <laughs> I think it needs to be a Lizzo, you know. A Lizzo song? Uh-huh. Ooh, drop it like it's hot. That'll be good. Interesting. See, I like the brainstorming we're doing here. All right, if I do a debate, you guys are in, and we're going to do some planning We're here. in the back seat. Yes. That's right. We're the yes. chorus. The chorus. Uh, thank you so much for uh, hanging out with us on this Friday and talking important issues. I know it's important to a lot of people. I learn new things. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends about us. We are back in session, just like school, so we will be back next week. Have a great one.